Hello there! This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Yo, baby, what's going on, man? I feel bloated. <laughs> you look bloated, so... I look bloated? Hicks, man, you look just like I feel. Right. No, I just feel bloated. Bloated. <laughs> what? Why? You've been eating, like, whale fat? What's going on there? I don't know. I just, I just feel heavy. <laughs> okay. Is this going somewhere? Do you have a punchline for this? Not really. Okay. <laughs> I really thought you were going somewhere with that. No, I've been eating a lot of fruit lately. You know why? Uh, good for the colon. Because colorectal health, as they say. It, it, here's one of the things that that uh, people don't understand: food tastes really good. I like food, and fruit tastes awesome. We just had a slam in apple, didn't we? Right. And here's the deal: I've just been feeling heavy lately because all I do all day long is sit in front of the computer and, and crank away in the computer and don't move. My butt is taking the shape of my chair. It's also taking the shape of a giant pumpkin, in right. case you weren't aware. So I decorated it for Halloween. I carved a, uh, carved John's ass, actually, into a smiley face with teeth. It, not what? entirely unenjoyable. Yeah, well. So so what I'm doing is, over the past couple of weeks, I'm, I'm starting myself on what's called the pedestrian limerick diet. Pedestrian limerick diet. There once was not, a man from Nantucket. There once was a guy who ate an apple. No, it's it's not like that. Limerick. It was Which is also that, a town in Ireland, if I'm not it mistaken. It is. It is, and it's the name. It's the last name of the person who sort of made it up on the fly. And I'll set. I'll put a link out there because it's really great. It's it's a diet that's totally common sense. And the reason why I don't like normal diets where you don't eat the foods that you like. This one is great because it has two rules. First rule is whenever you can move, exercise walk don't do anything like outrageous like go to the gym and stare master for 4500 hours don't get on a bike don't get on a bike none of that stuff <laughs> just walk you know walk someplace walk for an hour or so occasionally which he never does by the way yeah well unfortunately i'm going to try to to work on rule number one that's, that's he's like, wagging his finger at me again didn't he do that like three episodes ago it's, it's not a problem when you're wagging the finger it's the finger that's being wagged <laughs> that's true as he wags the middle finger at me <laughs> so, i'm gonna give you a little isaac Right there. You have, you have to do the... So the second rule... The it, love boat bartender, by the way. Isaac? He had the greatest sideburns. He did. And fro. <laughs> second <laughs> rule true. of the Limerick diet. Is this real? It's real. Okay. Eat whatever the hell you want, as much as you want, never go hungry. Whoa. And when they see you eat whatever you want, it's not so much like don't eat like fried pizza wings or anything like that. It's... It's where you take a wing. Chocolate-coated sugar bombs. You take a, take a wing and you wrap it in a, in a piece of pizza and you batter it and deep fry it. It's a fried pizza wing. Slathered in I, butter sauce. I got that. It's, it's basically, don't ever go hungry. If, if you're feeling hungry, eat until you're not hungry. Constantly keep your blood sugar up. Just keep eating. And when you eat, eat as much fruit and vegetables as you can. 
don't ever think that there's anything wrong about eating any kind of fruit or vegetable. And if you're going to have a salad for your meal, put whatever you want on it. Because if you're going to commit yourself to having a bowl of water with fiber, you can put whatever you want because you can only eat so much. I mean, milk, chocolate sauce, anything that you want, anything that you want on that salad. But because the rest of your day, you're pretty much going to be filling up with apples, oranges. What I want on my salad, by the way, you hate (laughs) the red wine vinegar. Yeah, you know what? Vinegar, even though it's pretty much without calories, not so much for me. Not good. And we've talked about that. But for me, red wine vinegar, olive oil, and lots of pepper. You know what I had for a salad today? Yum. It was awesome. What? Plain old lettuce. Boring iceberg lettuce? Iceberg lettuce. It had a little bit of romaine, I think, mixed in. Extra virgin olive oil, which is has so much flavor. Well, we love the virgins. That's right. Extra virgins. Oof. Not just regular ones. Extra ones. Sliced olives. Olive oil and olives. That's right. It's like a double whammy. It's the double O. Chickpeas. Good stuff. Garbanzo beans. Same thing. That's what I'm talking about. Oh. I'm, just, I'm, I'm translating for the people who don't know what chickpeas are. And that's it. Salt and pepper. I love the pepper. And not so much the salt. You know what? Something like that. It tastes so good. And, and the thing is, after you get away from the whole fried food thing for for maybe like a week or so, some of this this natural stuff, like it was crazy. Our, our forefathers and, and the people who are, you know, making little fires and cooking things and you have the Like the Ben furrow, Franklin? Furrow brows, you know, those, those cave people. <laughs> are you talking people? about Ben Franklin or Cro-Magnon men? The cave people. They had it right, you know, the, the food that's fresh and natural, and it, it tastes really, really good on its well, own. Well, they had no choice but to eat fresh food. Yeah, but it tastes really good. Food, you don't, good food. You don't, have to, you don't have to batter it to make it good. Well, the uh, salt and battery is just illegal, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> batter anyway. it and fry it. I mean, oh, oh. And it doesn't necessarily require butter. So, yeah, this, this Limerick diet is great because it's... Which is what's great about Italian cooking, by the way, because there's not a lot like of butter it. in it. You know, uh, Molto Mario, the man who was fired from food TV. He uh, was not fired. All right, whatever. And uh, he quit under duress. John, John's related. That's the only reason he's defending him. But he often says cooking with butter is cheating, you know, because it's really easy to make it's something flavor. taste good when you add 14 tablespoons of butter. Well, right. It's like saying, okay, um, I'm going to stay awake, but with cocaine. <laughs> Excuse me while I have my butterfied water here. <laughs> well, you know. Butter makes it the world. Chateau around. de Bovine wine here. So yeah, I'm going to put a link good. up on the site to this. It's great because it's a great story too. This this person who sort of came upon this diet on her own. She lost a lot of weight. And it's very common sense. And it, and the the purpose of this diet is do not do not remove anything from your life. If you're at a birthday party and someone serves cake, have the cake. Don't don't say oh geez I can't have it and torture yourself over it. Have a slice of cake. It's not going to kill you. But don't just go home and have the rest of the cake afterwards. Well, if it were poisoned, it could kill you. Well, true. If the baker was also filling it with rat poison, <laughs> you're done. Hemlock. Hemlock milkshakes. Mm, those are some yeah. good things. Yep. Yum. You know what? What? Music. We're going to play a song. Music. Good. And, and this one, actually, I'm excited about the show because we have two very strong pieces of music today. And uh, you want to hear them? I do. Let's listen.
thought those guys were great. Those guys are great. Where in the name of all things that are evil did you find those guys? They are from the lands of Nether Netherlands. But yeah, but where'd you actually find them? Podsafe Music Network. Really? It, the, the what reason... section were they under? Acapella? <laughs> That's an inside joke because if you look on that Podsafe Music Network, you look under acapella and not one of those is No, acapella. we found one. one. We found one a couple of weeks ago. So where did you end up finding them? Like, well, how did you discover them? Well, I was digging through in my uh, my weekly ritual of uh, finding music and trying to find some stuff that's interesting, not just uh, what's the latest that's been posted. I've been doing that too, but you've been far more lucky than I have with the... Uh, oh, it's all skill. There's no luck involved at all. Yes. So I'm, I'm digging through this music and it's hard to tell because the way that the stuff is categorized is purely arbitrary, as we were saying about the acapella thing. Well, they have categories, but no one pays attention. No one pays attention and they put it in the wrong stuff. This, I would say, was absolutely progressive. Progressive rock, maybe even. I, I would... Definitely. This was called something like alternative rock, which I think like grunge, Pearl Jam kind of stuff, alternative rock. Typically what most people refer to as alternative, yeah. Well, at least old guys like us. Or people who were around during that era. Right, the alti era. Weezer, that's alternative rock. This is not Weezer. So one of the things I do when I look at a band, I also look at the way that they self-categorize themselves. Self-categorize themselves. It's repetitive, too. So I look at this, and, and they say that their influences are Frank Zappa, always a good sign, yes, and Gentle Giant. And I'm thinking, yeah. okay, I'm good with that. And their name, by the way, was Modest Midget. I mean, if I had heard that name, uh, if I were perusing the Podsafe Music Network and saw the name Modest Midget, I would certainly listen because, the you know, I... I you know, conjures images of Gentle Giant. That song was called Evolution, and it was very strong, and they're from the Netherlands, eh? Yeah, and I've got two more pieces of theirs, which are really good. So we'll be playing them in the future, absolutely. Yeah, very strong, and as uh, we've come to learn in the past few months, most people fast-forward through the music anyway. So you're not hearing this. You may not be. We can say anything. We can say anything. Kill your children. (laughs) Did I say that? No. Okay. No. So we, we, you want to talk about a movie? We haven't talked about a movie in a flim, while. The, the Flim. The Flim. And this one was called Chalk. C-H-A-L-K. Yes, it was. And uh, directed by a guy that I've grown to like very much, a guy by the name of Morgan Spurlock, who did Supersize Me. He didn't direct that. No? No. I he, thought he did direct I it. I think he was involved in distribution. He did not direct it. Oh, well, it says Morgan Spurlock Presents. I guess he could be executive uh, producer. When I saw it, and, and I saw this on... DVD. Rich saw this at the film festival. I saw this on DVD. Morgan Spurlock did the introduction, and then they had this little uh, vignette, this little, this little uh, how how chalk came to be because it's an independent film. Oh, it's his distribution company, right? Yeah, he saw the film after it was already produced and directed and everything, and he thought that it needed to be distributed. He thought people should see it. Heart so, sharp production. Yeah, so he picked it up, uh, which is going to release films of social relevance. Yes, and this film was kind of a look at the frustrating and both frustrating and joyful aspects of kind of being a teacher in, I guess, the public school system in the United States of America. Yeah. And now, when you were watching this film, we we were kind of seeing it through the eyes of two or three teachers and one administration-level person. 
And I guess it was three teachers that mattered. There was the the inexperienced teacher who couldn't connect to his class and didn't understand his curriculum all that well. There was a sort of hipster teacher who right. really kind who wanted of, to be the, the friend of all the kids. Yeah, and he got along well with the kids and probably did a pretty good job in class. And then there was the short-haired sort of, uh, let's assume she's a lesbian gym teacher. And uh, and then an administration person who was a teacher at one point and right. was promoted to administration. Now, did you do you had did you have analogs for these teachers? Because I was thinking about that when I saw every single thing. one of them. Yeah. I had an analog. And you know the thing we have to say here is this although was, the 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 woman gym teachers at UFA actually were lesbians. This one in the <laughs> film were not. No, I'm not kidding. Yeah, they had short hair and they were definitely gay. And as far as if I remember correctly, they were a couple. Most stereotypes are based in truth at some point. The uh, we have to say this. This is it. Sounds like a documentary, but it's not. It's kind of like one of those it's mockumentaries. Like a documentary. Yeah. It's kind of like the mockumentaries of uh, in the vein of like Spinal Tap and Best in Show and all those. Except for this one tries to be a little bit more realistic, where those others are sort of cartoonish in the characterization. Well, it's 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 sort of a, a documentary slash reality show because we get those nighttime confessional things too. True. Where they go true. home and they have the one-on-one with the camera which right. kind of started on like MTV's Real World or whatever, you know? Yeah. Where you go into the confessional and you just kind of pour your, your heart out to the camera and then at some point they misrepresent you and edit it in somewhere where it's totally inappropriate. And, and, and in that little uh, vignette, which I'll, I, well, fortunately I sealed it up and I'm going to send it back to Blockbuster, but in that vignette of... Uh, in the envelope that you sealed up? <laughs> that's right. I might have to tape it back up. Um, the uh, the vignette, they, they talk about uh, the one actor who plays that inexperienced teacher who's sort of pining over the, the gym teacher. He, Actually, he, the gym teacher was kind of pining over him more than he was pining over the gym it teacher. It was his dream sequence, if you remember, though. It, it was, but she was the most aggressive, being a lesbian. The funny thing I found out, in reality, the two of them are really married. That's the first thing. Really? Yeah, those no, two, they're married. The second thing is he says something at in one of these interviews saying that one of the reasons that they liked doing the film in sort of a mockumentary kind of way is that it makes people think, well... These are some choices they made. These are some statements that they're trying to make. These are some positions they're actually fabricating. These are film choices as opposed to a documentary, which, well, that's what they caught on film and that's all that they could put together. And, you know, reality is reality. These are things that they're they're choosing to do. And as a viewer, you're sort of conscious of that. Yes. And it's some funny stuff that they choose to do. <laughs> and by the way, when I saw this film at Munson Williams Proctor Arts Institute, the audience was filled with teachers. You know, this was was it? This was one of the films that they showed previews for. You know, every once in a while, when there's a big one coming through, they'll show previews for a few weeks, and then the audience is generally very large. Like the Queen was one that they showed previews for. Sicko was one that they showed previews for, and they showed previews for this film. And I think that in basic from from what I could gather. I mean, I personally know several teachers who were there, but just from the, the sort of chattering after the film, you know, you kind of got the feeling that there were a lot of teachers there because they were suddenly right. t- comparing their plights at, at school to those of the people in this film, you know, not f- feeling like they're not getting administrative support and, and things like that. Yeah, it is, I'm thinking about these uh, these analogs to some of my teachers. and I, I can name names if you want to right now. Go ahead. Well, the hipster teacher um, who the, – the teacher in the film was 
probably took it over the line a little bit, you know, trying to be the kids' friends. But the hipster teacher that who didn't take it over the line but still managed to maintain a great relationship with both faculty and students and still was thought of as cool by the students was a guy named Ralph Lupia, Mr. Lupia. And he taught me health, actually. And his, even though sex education was sort of forbidden, you know, ooh, sex education, his health class was really a sex ed class. But you know what? The really funny thing is he also taught music appreciation and things like that in his health class. And I know I've mentioned this on the show before, and perhaps some of you will remember, but I've made mention of a teacher who was actually at Kent State during the shootings. That was him. Mr. Lupia was, you know, he's still very involved in social activism. He always was. He was there, right? You know, lots of people write songs about Kent State and get hits out of them. And lots of people talk about, you know, the Vietnam era and all this stuff. But he was there when those kids got shot by the National Guardsmen. And this made, obviously, a huge impact on him. And to this day, anytime I see Mr. Lupia, he's still the cool guy that he was when I was in 10th or 11th grade and he was teaching me health and playing like, you know, um, God, what what were the two artists that he loved that he used to play? Because their lyrics had social sex relevance. <laughs> no, it was not the Sex Pistols. Uh, who wrote the music in The Graduate All? What was the... Uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel, yeah. He loved Simon and Garfunkel, and he would play a lot of that. And uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company was her band. Um, the alcoholic woman who sang I Want a Mercedes Benz and all that. Why, why can't I think of her name? Janice. Janice Janice Joplin Joplin. was someone who also made a huge impact on him. So he would play these kinds of music and try to, I I don't know if he was, it was music appreciation or he was trying to just capture the, the spirit of the hippie movement and sort of pass it on to his students, you know? Do you have a hipster teacher analog? Not so much because I never had a teacher that was that um, engaging because the teacher- The teacher in this in this uh, in this program was really 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 wanting to be the the student's friend more than really the education <laughs> the educator <laughs> and, and the the one part of or the one scene that was that killed me was when he took the two students aside and said look you probably know more about history than I do but try to tone it down yeah right <laughs> <laughs> but I don't I didn't really have a, a teacher like that so much but I had a lot of teachers who were more like the inexperienced deer in headlights kind of what am I doing here and uh and and one teacher in particular and it wasn't like he was inexperienced it's just you knew he didn't want to be there you knew he really? did not want to be teaching and uh, there would be days where you'd show up and he'd be like okay look guys just just, just, just read. I'm going to put a film strip on or do something. something. Boop, and you advance right. the film. Frame. This was before the days of video. We had film strips and had the beeps. Film strips in like 16 millimeter movies. That's you know? right. And you'd get that section where the audio was really bad and the video was really bad. It must be actually kind of cool to be in high school now with uh, real, you know, high quality video and, and things like that, you know. But the thing that I couldn't relate to at all in this film was students with cell phones. Sorry. Well, when we went to school, you know, we didn't have cell phones. But I wonder, you know, every one of those scenes, though, got a reaction out of the crowd. So clearly teachers, and again, this audience was just very, you know, teacher-centric. Um, certainly that must be a problem, you know. It's got to be. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had a friend who was in Georgetown recently, and a woman, uh, one of the students actually answered a call during class. So obviously this is an issue with teachers. Yeah, I think that um, one of the the teachers said it best in his confessional. I think he said, 
what is the emergency? What's the the most important thing in the world that, that you have to call a 15-year-old? <laughs> well, and that's the way I feel about cell phones in general, you know. And I, and this is sort of mocking, you know, people with cell phones because I don't have one. But it's sort of like, you know, who do you think you are? You know, what could possibly be that important that you need to answer your cell phone right now? You know, okay, doctors, fine. You know, someone's dying and, you know, they need an answer. You know, I guess I could see... Um, House, you know, he needs a cell phone, you know, but I'm not sure, you know, Jonas Salk needs a cell phone. Well, there are a lot of things. Dr. Andrew Weil, but I don't know about anybody else. There are a lot of things in the world that that you that you don't need and and that we enjoy. But for a kid to be in class and to have a cell phone interrupting them, there's absolutely nothing that that kid needs to be doing or needs to know about during that time. Because I lived through a period when if there was an emergency, I would hear a little announcement on the speaker, come to the principal's office, and then you'd go there. And it would be just like, you know, Charlie Brown's parents. Yeah, if your parents need to get in touch with you, if someone needs to get in touch with you in an emergency, they know where you are because you're prisoner at the high school. That's right. And you're right. The uh, the history teacher was Troy Schremer, and Coach Webb was Janelle Schremer. So right. apparently they're, at the very least, brother and sister. They didn't look like brother and sister. Actually, I thought she was kind of cute. I like that short hair look on girls. You like the lesbian feel? I do, totally. <laughs> okay. And when, when you post those pictures from the Halloween party, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about? You're so a lesbian? did you like this film? I thought it was really funny. Yeah, it was very entertaining. And even though Morgan Spurlock didn't direct it, and I'm going to be called out on that, called out nice. on that apparently on our on our blog because I made a factual error here. Um, it's almost as if he could have directed it. Clearly, he chose this film to distribute it for its style. Well, he's. I think he's more in the vein of the actual documentary, even. And in the whole gonzo journalism thing where he gets involved in, in the documentary and, and puts his, his health and body on the line for the documentary. Well, which would, would have been supersize me. Right. Yeah. I think that's his kind of thing. But I certainly think that uh, this is a kind of film, as he said in this vignette, he, he came out and said his whole family is filled with teachers and educators. So that's why it sort of spoke to him. And if you've got any teachers in your family or if you've ever been involved in teaching You'll, Which I don't, and I don't, ironically. I, I've been in situations where that, that uh, inexperienced teacher was standing in front of a whole bunch of people, and he's never done it before, and you feel like, what the hell am I doing here? How well, can these people look at me? I remember in 10th grade, we had a social studies teacher. A lot of uh, curriculum around the United States might call that history. Right. But we called it social studies here in New York. And we had a teacher, and I believe his name was Edwin Wynn, Mr. Wynn. And he had a mild uh, mental breakdown, if I understand it, and he had to take the year off. So suddenly we had this woman thrust upon us who was uh, a substitute teacher. She had substituted a few times for Mr. Wynn, but suddenly she was the teacher for the rest of the year. And she was in a, you know, suddenly thrust into this having to be the, the teacher and not just the substitute teacher. Yeah, not and having just the person who's hitting spitballs. Yeah, she had to sort of start determining curriculum and what was going to go on for the next week. She had to be the teacher and take over for Mr. Wynn, and she was really a fish out of water. I mean, she did as, as good as she could, and I remember she had two different names, actually. She was married uh, at one point in the, in the year, so the she, year. she had a maiden name, and eventually she had her married name, and I, I don't remember either of them, uh, sadly. <laughs> she really made an impression on you. Uh I'm almost remembering it, but it's just not coming out. It's, it was a quite odd name. Her her maiden name was was quite odd, like you know Mrs. Booger or something. You know, just something you wouldn't expect a name to be. You know, that's funny. Booger. I'm a, I'm a funny you said guy. booger. I did. I did. So on the whole, I, I would give this film an erect appendage. 
You said whole and erect appendage <laughs> all in one sentence, Rich. You're out of control. Somebody needs to slow me down. You want to play a tune? Let's hit it. Let's uh, jump into another one.
that guy's music has so much flavor, and I, I can't. I guess if I were going to pick music to sit around and, and drink wine to, it would probably be that. You know, I'd probably uh, drink several bottles of wine if I had to listen to that all day long. <laughs> What does that mean? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's one of those things that puts you in the mood to drinking wine. It totally puts you in a... It's very flavorful, his music. And that was uh, the great Lev Zerbin, who was very a violist, who was kind enough to let us play uh, his music on our program. Everything you're hearing in that recording is him playing the viola, either the pizzicato string plucking uh, in the bass and in the, the other sort of counterpoint and harmony parts, and then him, of course, playing his viola for the main melody line. The viola was doing the vocals, too? Yes. I'm going to briefly talk about one film, and um, it's about an artist. It was a documentary I saw last night at Munson Williams Proctor Arts Institute about an American portrait painter, a woman named Alice Neal, who I knew nothing about. Uh, were you familiar with her work at all? Not at all. Well, uh, you know, after looking at it on the website, how would you describe it? I would describe it as interesting. Well, it, it's hard to say. It, it's not like realism. It's definitely not realism. It's not, um, I don't know. There there are a, a couple of artists that she some, seems to sort of evoke, like early, early, early Picasso. I'm not talking Picasso, right. the cubist Picasso. I'm talking about Picasso when he was actually doing uh, representational work. Okay. Um, and interesting, but certainly not realistic. Almost has a cartoonish quality to it. Well, what I, in again, not being an artist, not having studied anything about art, but, you know, to quote those people who are the uninitiated, knowing what I like. <laughs> um, and that's cheese whiz. And it is on crackers with gluten. In a century when a lot of the, the depiction of the human form turned into sort of um, deconstruction and uh, abstract, you know, this woman was doing not, as you said, realistic or photorealistic art. But yet, somehow, she really managed to capture the spirit and the soul of the subject she was painting. I mean, I I look at her work and I'm just awestruck. You know, I mean, I see it just like because they interviewed a variety of the subjects of the people she painted, many of whom were her children, actually. And the the paintings just really seemed to evoke the spirit and the soul, for lack of a better word, of of the subjects that she was painting, and she really seemed to capture that. You know, for me anyway. You know. Well, yeah, when you look at the stuff, it's not it's not like a cold, dead stare that you're getting. You're actually getting some emotion. There's there's sort of a story behind each picture. And most of the pieces were kind of looking right into the lens, though. Right. You know, she painted them from the perspective of they were looking square at you, you know, dead in the eye, you know. And you weren't getting a cold stare. She managed to capture a lot of warmth. And it wasn't like a, like a presidential portrait painter. Not at all. Where in a presidential kind of portrait, you're getting a room... You're getting an environment. You're getting a lot of lighting. Perhaps a flag or two. Uh, seven, <laughs> 12. And they're all American flags. No, in this, it's all about the subject. The subject is almost stark upon the background. Right. And, well, apparently she's a very well-respected artist. And despite the fact that she was, even in her time, she could have sold a lot of her work, she chose not to do that. In uh, in many ways, her family lived in poverty and squalor because she chose not to, to sell any of her paintings. And, uh, the, the, I mean, as far as a film goes, the docu- it was a documentary piece about her, Alice Neal. Uh, the pacing was a little slow. It lost me every once in a while. It's because you're slow? They, yeah. It's because uh, I'm... What? <laughs> Were we saying something? 
<laughs> Why'd you have to put the southern accent on that? What are you implying? I'm, I'm implying that it's funnier when you put a southern accent on okay. someone who's dumb. You, you, ooh, you may be right. But yeah, the, the pacing was a little slow and it lost me at times. But I am a lover of documentaries and I'm a lover of documentaries about interesting people. So I, I have to recommend it. If And they certainly show a wide range of this artist's work ranging from the 30s up until the 80s. I mean, she just yep. painted... She painted voraciously, I guess. You know, she was prolific. Like, she was very prolific. Now, a film that I want to talk about that I saw, I rented this uh, quite by accident. I, was, I had one of those like free coupons at Blockbuster, and I needed to rent something. Did you have to go into a back room to get that film? <laughs> I, I didn't. But I ended up renting a film called Game Over, which was... Game Over, dude! Yeah, man. Oh, why don't you put her in charge? It was a... a documentary look at the grudge match between Gary Kasparov and the IBM chess-playing supercomputer Deep Blue, I believe the most uh, recent version of it was called. Not to uh, throw us off on another tangent. Yes. But Gary Kasparov. Not Kasparov, to be tangential. He's running for the, the presidency of yes. Russia. Yeah, he's always been very involved in politics, and unlike 95% of the chess players in the world, he is, um, what's the word, an extrovert. And right. is uh, has a bit of an ego, but you know this was I, I rented this film for a couple of reasons because the problem of chess playing from a computer perspective is interesting to me, and I used to run a chess club actually. Talk about being totally geeky. Me and my friend Joe Brooks used to run a local chess club. He used to wear a bow tie. <laughs> I wore bow ties and a suspenders. Argyle socks. And I had a little hat with a propeller. He used to wear. Uh... Knickers, and, uh, and be careful. Quite a bit. Be careful with the knickers, or you'll be accused of being a bounty hunter. <laughs> Dog, you know. Ah, uh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of being slow. So uh. anyway, Gary Kasparov. There was an accusation after one of the games from Mr. Kasparov towards IBM that they cheated. You know, he minced his words. He was very circuitous about the way he went about it, but he basically accused them of perhaps suggesting a move to Deep Blue, you know, because the move just seemed very non-computer-like to Mr. Kasparov, and he doesn't like to lose. And even though this documentary was made about 10 years later, it's still not clear to me from having seen the documentary whether he meant those words or not, you know. I suspect he did because he didn't retract any of them. But here's what I know about uh, IBM as a corporation, and it's very little, except as, as I understand it, they have something to do with computers or abacus or something like that. Yeah, I think that, that they've got uh, a really cool logo, too. As anyone who listens to the program knows, I would certainly not go out on a limb to defend a large corporation under any circumstances. And IBM stock did jump quite a bit when uh, Deep Blue ultimately defeated Kasparov when he resigned in the last game and Deep Blue ended up winning the, the match. However, imagine what IBM has to lose if it's found out that they did cheated, you know? I mean, just as their stock prices rose, their stock prices would probably fall if it was found out that they did cheat. And what I, I do happen to have a small amount of knowledge about, they hired a consultant, a chess master, a Joel Benjamin, the youngest person in the history of the United States to ever reach the master level. And he has been U.S. chess champion numerous times. And I know guys who've played against him in tournaments. I've read a lot about him, and his reputation is beyond reproach. So certainly if IBM, you know, was inclined to cheat, it was without his knowledge. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
But an interesting film, just because it kind of, they interview Kasparov at the scene of the crime, as it were, you know, like eight, nine, ten years later, and he kind of you know, reflects and recollects about those times. But on the whole, I mean, as a computer guy, John, and as me, as somewhat of a computer guy, this was only a matter of time, right? Brute force alone was going to cause uh, the human chess-playing machine to fall to the computer eventually, wasn't it? I mean... Well, yeah, because chess is ultimately about limiting the number of possibilities and choosing the best possibility over the long run. And if you've got a computer that can see all of the possibilities in all of the branches, I mean, it's a finite number of moves. But Well, it's a huge number of moves. It's though. a huge by, number. By move number 40, the number of chess permutations are actually, that number is greater than the number of atoms in the universe. I mean, that's been calculated. But it is still finite. I mean, we're not talking about quantum type stuff here. We're talking about it's a finite number, and it's something that is computationally... I guess it's, within the, within the grasp, it's solvable. Yeah, and brute force is becoming easier and easier and easier because we're of Moore's law. Moore's law is not just something that is something that people bandy about and say, "Oh yeah, well we're we're doubling the speed of computers every so many years." It's really happening. And in fact, I think we're probably even on a better pace than Moore's law. Right, and I'm sure that's going to be called into question too. Yeah, we're going to get called on that on the, on the called out on that on the blog now. Okay, so the number of potential the the key to the chess playing algorithm is determining which positions are strong and which positions are weak, so that you don't put as much computation time into analyzing right. weak positions as you do into strong positions. And they've had 40 years of of computer science since they started writing strong computer chess programs to develop the chess playing algorithm and combined with I, I think IBM's super supercomputer had two hundred risk processors running in parallel. Mm-hmm. The the uh the IBM uh, running AIX, their version of Unix and their um uh, what was that chip called? The um RS four thousand or RS two thousand, whatever it was and, I mean, again, it was only a matter of time before a, a pretty solid chess-playing algorithm combined with being able to analyze 300 million positions per second was going to beat a human. And right. I remember when this tournament happened in, in 1997. It's 10 years ago. And me and my chess-playing friend, Joe Brooks, we were rooting for the computer. You know, not be, I'm not a huge Kasparov fan. He's a little too cocky for me. So, I mean, that sort of played against Kasparov. But, I mean, just on the whole, I felt it was time, you know, and I was sort of rooting for the computer to win, and it did. And I guess an interesting uh, an interesting um, part two to this story is that IBM isn't even in the business. And this was – not only was this uh, a supercomputer that was running, you know, 200 of their risk processors in parallel, they also built some application-specific integrated circuits, some ASICs just that were optimized for analyzing chess. So this was a computer that was built just to play chess. Well, in today, in the year 2000 or 2006, we've got some very sophisticated regular PC chess software programs, the best of which I believe is called Fritz. And it's running on like a quad core, you know, dual Xenon, IBM, you know, type uh, Intel chip. And it can only analyze, not advertise, but analyze like seven or eight million positions per second. And it crushed the world champion in a tournament last year. It beat him four to two out of six games. And, you know, usually it's like, you know, three and a half, two and a half or, you know, something close, you know, a lot of draws with a few wins. But, you know, four to two is a crush in a chess 
tournament. So we're yeah. really at that point, you know, and, and I don't feel any less of a human because a chess computer beat Kasparov and Vladimir Kramnik, you know. I mean, this wasn't man versus the machine. Humanity isn't going to suddenly disappear because a computer beat us at chess. Well, you should read a book called uh, What Computers Still Can't Do. And it's it's a book about AI and about the false promises of AI. And well, about, we still do not have a com- commander data. <laughs> yes, we do. On TV, but we don't have a oh, real commander okay. data. And, and this book basically posits that you can have brute force. You can have all sorts of computational uh, mastery of the, the elements of what appear to be human behavior. But the reality is you can't have an AI, a computer, that acts like a human being until it actually has all of the senses of a human being and is essentially grown and lives like a human being because a lot of what humans do is based upon context context their rearing yeah, yeah. their the the way that you experience the world i mean there was a great uh, documentary on PBS 15 years ago called the machine that changed the world and it talked about that it it went into that sort of uh, angle yeah and and i think that that the way that I appreciate an apple, and we were talking about an apple earlier, the, the way I appreciate it... By that, you mean an actual fruit. An actual fruit, not the computer. The way I appreciate an apple has a lot to do with the way it feels in my hand, the way it tastes, not because I know that it has a certain number of calories in it, what it's going to do for my system, you know, all those things. It's going to make you quite regular. Not because someone told me that it tastes good, not because well, I have a fact in my head that says apples are good things, they taste good with cinnamon. It's because <laughs> I've actually done those things, I've experienced them. And a computer is not going to be able to do that until computation is not just a brute force thing. So no, a, a chess algorithm, that's like one tiny little thing that a human can, being can do. But could it cross the street and think about music don't think so yeah does it have an opinion on film um, not, not a good one no no certainly not probably better than yours but not a good one well certainly better than mine but you know an interesting documentary although it was a little too conspiratorial for me you know it kind of bought into the ibm cheated thing and then and the pawn like, was moved back into the left <laughs> back yeah you know very interesting though just because it kind of had some behind the scenes footage and, and and things like that and as a as a person who used to play tournament chess you know i i found that interesting but you know otherwise you know you might want to check it out i probably will maybe you could see alice neal and gary kasparov in a film together that might be interesting that would be really oh well i guess we're done yeah the the gods of klaxon say we are done we still got to play the Star Trek klaxons. I miss the Star Trek klaxons. Well, you know, they come out during the holidays. My name is Rich Wilgus. <laughs> that was a Poland spring water bottle that time. And he's a Polish co-host. <laughs> and I am John Tellerico. Check us out on the web, www.bloodyveg.com. Soon to be uh, with a new look and feel. Yes, mostly feel. And uh, check out the forum, bloodyvege.com slash forum. Leave us feedback. Tell us how much you hate us, but be polite. Feedback at bloodyvege.com. Yeah, you know, when you send the feedback, tell us how much you hate us, but um, be logical about it. That's right. And remember, you've been listening to the VIB, 